Hey everybody, it's me, Evgeny. Before we start today's interview, I want to let you know about an event later this year, which, if you're into this podcast, will be right up your alley. It's called Data Center World, and it's scheduled for August 16th in Orlando, Florida. Data Center World is the leading conference and expo for data center and IT infrastructure professionals. It's the only industry event that delivers exclusive state of the data center research findings, in-depth workshops, 50-plus conference sessions, keynotes from industry luminaries, the largest offering of data center technology solutions, and unlimited networking opportunities. Find out more about the event and register at www.datacenterworld.com. That's www.datacenterworld.com. Hope to see you there. Hey guys, this is Yevgeny, Editor-in-Chief at Data Center Knowledge. Welcome to the Data Center Podcast. We have today Dean Nelson, he's CEO of Virtual Power Systems, and a few other things. Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been a long time, Yevgeny, so I'm glad to yes, be here. It has. <laughs> yes, it has. VPS has a novel take on power distribution in the data center. It's The software pushes power dynamically on demand to where it's needed on the data center floor. That's kind of the best uh, way I could describe that in one sentence. <laughs> um, Dean himself is very well known in the data center industry. He's ran data centers at Sun, then eBay, then Uber. He's founded Infrastructure Masons, the industry group. Um, and now for more than a year, he's been CEO, CEO of a data center tech company. Um, you, you took the role at VBS last year. Mm-hmm. Um, you were pretty busy already. You were doing iMasons, spending time with family. You had a data center consultancy, which with your resume has the potential of a gold mine these days. <laughs> There's a lot of demand. I'll, yeah, well, you're, you're absolutely correct. <laughs> so what was it about this role that made you say, you know, it's worth taking the time away from all these other things? Yeah, let, let me back up a little bit. Um, just in summary, so I, I've been doing this for 31 years now. Right? So I started at Sun Microsystems on my 21st birthday. And then I left Uber on my 51st birthday. So 30 years exactly, right? You probably saw my mm-hmm. post I put out just of uh, now taking some time. And, you know, my daughter got signed to RCA Records and started doing touring. And it was just like incredible. So one of those life moments that there's no way I was going to miss. So mm-hmm. my wife and I followed her on tour. And so we spent, you know, six months and I was doing advisory work in the middle and those kind of things. I wanted to do something totally different because I've been on the operations side, right? The buyer side for, for 30 years at that point. And um, I'd got advice from a lot of really cool people that just told me, you know, if you're looking for a shift, there's a lot of opportunity, as you mentioned. And boy, is it, it actually blossomed in the last year and a half. The pandemic has exposed so many other weaknesses, but opportunities at the same time. So what, what happened in that, that interim period of time, uh, I started doing advisory work for private equity, you know, Fortune, Fortune 50 companies, that kind of stuff. And it was really, it was really uh, eye-opening to me. And, and this was investors, institutional investors looking for advice because they see this hot growing space and they want to, yeah. to see how to best invest in it. Yeah, and just people exploring, should they get into it? If they are going to get into it, how should they get into it? Are they acquiring a company? Are they starting a company? Um, you know, what what area, region is are they going to do this? For what reason? So I think it was, it was just great, a business and tech, you know, effort uh, from the private equity side. And I really enjoyed that. And then I joined uh, some boards and advisory council on a number of different areas. And it, um, it, I, it, it really kind of resonated with me. And the reason was, I like, I like, playing with a lot of cool stuff. I like being in the middle of it, right? I think you and I met in um, 
at the opening of Project Mercury, I think it was. That's right, or in pro- Phoenix. Yeah, in Phoenix. And I remember that because, yeah. you know, we're like putting containers on the roof and it's 120 Fahrenheit outside. And we you, had, you had all the coolest stuff. Yeah, and, and it was just neat to be able to play around with that cool, disruptive stuff. And um, so I started doing that with a number of different companies, and one of them was Virtual Power Systems. And I'd known of them for a while. As a matter of fact, we'd done an evaluation uh, of them at eBay. And uh, Eddie Shooter, who I pulled out of AT&T, came into work for me at eBay, and then he, I, I had him take over when I left and went right uh, with my, my daughter on this stuff um, for, for when she was looking for colleges. But um, in, the, in the middle of all that, uh, what I was finding is that the market really wasn't ready. And the product had the right idea, but the market couldn't embrace it. And when I say that, it's just think about data centers today. Where is software applied? It's mostly in automation, reporting, alerting, yeah. those kind of things. But it's truly DSIM. not. Yeah, I mean, DSIM to you know control systems to you know to uh, sustainability to reporting systems. Like there, there's there is software, but it's not applied in the same way in which the other layers of the stack apply software orchestration and letting software actually make decisions because there's still a lot of fear inside of the data center industry because we can't let software control this thing because it can it can make a mistake right. and so the market wasn't really ready at, uh, at that point and um, and also uh, I think that I learned a few things in the last couple of years here too where uh, the market also had a very specific structure from a financing standpoint Real estate trusts. What they do is they're a real estate focused company that is is primary looking at occupancy. And the occupancy basically says, I'm going to build this thing with X amount of megawatts. I'm going to contract all of that. And the utilization underneath it is secondary. So here we're building data centers with, you know, a 50 megawatt data center with 20, 25 megawatts used, 50% utilization, yet it's an effective data center from a real estate trust. Well, the, the investors are happy. Yeah, everybody's happy, and then if they need to do some other things, they just build another one because there's so much money pouring into this. Because now, of course, data centers are an asset class, and that's why private equity and and you know infrastructure funds and everybody are just pouring money into the space because they see the long-term benefits of digital infrastructure when it comes down to their returns. It meets, it ticks all their boxes. So, um, so we start looking at thinking, okay, there's a there's a massive opportunity in this, yet there's a mismatch between the demand. What's the burning problem? And so uh, all this to say, I had, had joined the board of VPS uh, in 2019. And then the investors and the board asked if I would step into the interim CEO role. And I just honestly said no five times because I really enjoyed my advisory work and what I was doing. <laughs> and I said, I can help. I'm on the board already. You got me. I can just go do this, right? But then um, I talked to our lead investor and he was saying, you know, for us to continue to propel this forward, we really need, we need your help to step in and do that. And I said, okay, so let me, let me do that. And then I did that right before the pandemic, right. February, 2020, right? Announced that interim role and then bam, the world changed. Um, but that was a good test. Honestly, it was a test on uh, how do you deal with issues uh, like that, that are like company killing issues revenue, runway, right? Investment, uh, customer traction, all those things. So it was a crash course really quick and I honestly really enjoyed it. Yeah. So got a good team of people. We have a good idea. We have a problem in the industry that we can go solve, yet we just got a mismatch in a couple of things like this. Yeah. And and so but I guess it didn't it didn't hurt that uh, when the pandemic started, it I mean there was 
a little bit of freak out in the data center industry, but then things really picked up, right? Oh yeah. So it wasn't like yeah. it wasn't like you had to start laying people off or something like that, I imagine. Yeah, it was it was um you know you gotta make tough decisions in that to make sure that you're you're doing the right thing for the company and for the employees. And so everybody had challenges within that that time. Yeah. But uh, did you I have to the, make some tough decisions, like layoffs? When when we you did. weren't certain. We had to furlough workers, we had to we had to keep our burn rate at a certain point, right? To make sure that we would have the runway because customers weren't making decisions as fast. I see. So so in the end of it, you still have to you gotta balance the business. And and those challenges I I just I'm really thankful for to my investors to the board to uh, to really all the employees in the company, everybody was in it to make sure that we were going to do the right thing and win it, mm -hmm. and so we were able to survive through the pandemic and then start to thrive during the pandemic because we did the right hard choices to make sure that we could do that. So and, there so there were temporary mm -hmm. furloughs and then those those roles are back now. Yeah, we had we had uh, a couple things we we did furloughs, but also we did have some layoffs that we had to do. And uh, we just did the right things to help the people during that period. So these are basic things. I'm going into too much detail. But, you know, I, most people care about the healthcare aspects of it, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Because there are other ways to go back and support while, while you're looking for a job. And so we extended our, our healthcare all the way through the end of the year. We, like, we did those things to make sure that, you know, if you're on the other side of that, that note, that receiving that note, would you be getting the things that you would hope you would get? And just right. keeping it human. You know, very, very important. And, and um, I just, uh, gracious, wonderful people, and, you know, in all that. So, again, tough decisions to get through those things. Um, and, and now when you think about it, all the demand that was going on, you mentioned before. I, we had an iMasons event where uh, the first virtual one uh, in there, and I had uh, Noelle Walsh, who runs mm -hmm. all of the infrastructure for, for Microsoft, on. I don't know if you remember that, but she uh, she said that she dropped this little bomb in the middle of my conversation saying, oh, yeah, and we turned up 100 megawatts in two weeks. Yeah, I heard that. <clears throat> I'm like, yeah. well, hold on, hold on, hold on. 100 megawatts in two weeks? Because Office 365 to Azure to, you know, all of those things were just exploding through the roof, just like Zoom and, and all the other properties. Yeah. So... Yeah, they just amazing things. But, but for but for for you guys, so mm -hmm. there was demand obviously from hyperscalers, and it, that still continues. Um, has mm -hmm. our sales back to where they were? Um, yeah, things have moved forward. I, I the the thing that that I I focus on the most is the market opportunity that we have is still there. Nothing's changed. We now have more money pouring into the industry and more capacity being built, yet we're still perpetuating the same problem. Inefficiency. We still have data centers that are inefficient, yeah. yeah. And this isn't PUE. This is the left side of the decimal. This is the one, right? But it's the capacity built for the one, and the one is not actually consuming at all. Yeah. So um, we actually shifted uh, part of the focus, too, to go back and, and enable power, software-defined power capabilities to utilize all that capacity. Because in the opening, you were talking about you can move power where you need to. In the end of it, you've got stranded pools of power across the data center. And what you need is software that's actually identifying those elements, the constraints within those elements, the activity within those elements, so that you can make an informed decisions on policies that are pushed to devices that unlock that capacity. So when you think about software-defined power, it's orchestration of power elements to enable that optimization to drive that utilization up. And what that ultimately does is lower your cost from an enterprise standpoint or increase your margin from an actual colo standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so I do I do want to talk I do want to talk um yeah. 
more about about the technology mm-hmm. um, at VPS and what you guys are doing now. Um, I do, but I want to ask a few more kind of CEO business yeah, related sure. questions. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm just curious. So you you mentioned thirty years you've been doing this um, mm-hmm. for you know the bulk of that. What well, all of it? You were basic. You were a customer of companies yep. like VPS, and you were a big important customer. You know, Sun, eBay, Uber, which means you pretty much got what you wanted from vendors. So what's it like now being on the vendor side? And how does it feel compared to what you've been used to, where you kind of call the <laughs> shots? Great question. I mean, when you own the budget, you can get a lot of things done. When you flip it around and you're trying to get a piece of that budget, it's a very different problem to solve. Um, but what I have found is that I'm I'm blessed with a, an amazing network of people. And we're a small community when you think about it. And iMasons has got leaders from every colo. Uh, like it just, We've got a, a, a combination of executives that are pretty incredible. And so when we start having conversations about what the next generation looks like and the future and what to do with the business thing, um, those connections that we do uh, open up lots of doors. So um, being on the other side, I've had a lot of, uh, I put an advisory council together of a very diverse group of experienced people, all different types of experience on purpose so that I could have different perspectives into, into what we're building. And in that, we got input and we started to shift and adjust and pivot based on that input. And this is on the customer side. So I called a lot of my peers and sat down and said, look, this is what we're doing. What do you think? Would you buy this? Would you use this if it was there? And uh, I was pleasantly surprised that they're all looking for that next level. And here's one of the big things that popped up. Today, there's like one product that's offered in data center. You get an SLA with a certain amount of capacity at a certain efficiency with a certain cost. There really is no right sizing of what that is. And so what we've actually now tuned in on is the ability to right size the SLAs for the tenants. What does that mean? Dynamically. So let's say I've got a 5.9 SLA. That's the traditional thing that would go out there. That 5.9, I have at a certain price. Let's say it's $125 a kilowatt. So I'm going to go contract, you know, five megawatts of capacity and, um, and utilize uh, this, this at 50%. But I don't need five nines. I actually have a software platform for my cloud modules or for my Hadoop environments or something that would allow me to take a lower SLA. But I have no options, no offer for that. The colo industry doesn't offer it. You have a product. You can get any color you want as long as it's this color. <laughs> so... If you were able to now create a multi-tenant or a multi-nine product, I can give you a 5.9, a 4.9, a 3.9, a 2.9, a no-9 SLA, all of a sudden, I can now right-size to it. And so what's important here is you have to solve both sides of it. So our product is an M9 offering, and that is where the tenants have the flexibility to choose their SLA all the way down to the cabinet level. Okay, And with that, they give the associated price reduction based on it. Then you flip it around and you've got the admin view. And that admin element is I'm creating pools of the nines. So I've got five, nine, four, nine, three, nine, two, nine, et cetera, at a certain price based on my utilization and capacity and those things and offer that up as inventory to my customers. But they have to make a choice from their revenue models, their capacities, their appetite, for oversubscription, right, and, and taking advantage of those inefficiencies to enable it, that's the stuff they need to do. But you start to marry those together, pretty incredible things start to happen. Yeah. So, and, and look, this is the, the, the punchline for me. The industry is ripe for disruption. 
the data center industry is ripe for disruption. And the reason I say that is right now, all of these amazing colo companies are creating this product that's extremely efficient when it comes down to PUE, et cetera. But they're getting to the point where the cost, the margins are getting really low. And the cloud players are pushing that because they're getting things at 60 or $70 a kilowatt. You can't go lower unless you sacrifice something else. Redundancy, service, something. Which means you got, you're going to have more risk. So we've reached that forcing function. As soon as company comes out and starts doing these lower priced elements, people are going to look at it one of two ways. They're buying the business at a loss leader, or they've come up with a better mousetrap. That is going to disrupt those markets. Yeah. And so, and so that's what I'm in. <laughs> okay. And so the play is to, to enable colo operators to, to offer that lower, lower cost, uh, maybe a lower redundancy product, mm-hmm. um, and still, you know, not sacrifice the margin and not sacrifice the SLA. This isn't like, I'm going to go risk it by the, like they do right now. So the benefit is the, is the margin that comes yeah. back. So kind of a more, but a also, more sophisticated, more intelligent approach to to infrastructure yeah. under your workloads. What does your application actually need and how close can we get to that? And this is a natural progression. If you think about cloud, you can right size what you want in cloud. I can go back and do reserved instances. I can do spot instances. I can do a lot of things inside of it. And what are they doing? They're orchestrating everything underneath to optimize their oversubscription and still meet what they're delivering to their customers. So it really isn't anything different. You're pushing it down to the power plane. That power plane now is using software, defined power capabilities, to now enable this approach. And that's, again, we just, we, the, the, in, the industry wasn't ready for this three to four years ago. They just weren't, there wasn't the forcing function for it. Now we are. Now I'm curious, so you mentioned you first um, got acquainted with the technology when you were at eBay. Uh, mm-hmm. I mistakenly assumed maybe that was while you were at Uber because right around the time you were running things there, on the data center side of things, Steve Hook, the uh, or Hoke, former Steve Hauk, yeah, Hauk. Uh-huh. Sorry, yep, uh, the former C- uh, VPS CEO whom you replaced. He he told us um, on this podcast that Uber was one of the companies trialing mm-hmm. the technology. Um, so w- were you involved uh, with that trialing there while yes. at Uber? Yeah. So oh, so I I did two two evaluations. So at two different times in my career, right? The first one was at eBay, and that was a pretty extensive one to go back and roll this into Salt Lake City. So there was analysis done. They'd rolled in the hardware and other elements to to do power bursting and phase or uh, and switching to enable similar things like this, right? Mm-hmm. But um, it didn't line up when it came down to the product. It wasn't ready yet. Okay. Straight, plain, plain and simple, right? And I'm, again, I'm a very straightforward guy. So um, Shankar and team went back, took that. They continued to do development. And if you look at it, Eddie Shooter was the one that was leading that exercise. We had James Monahan, right, who used to be uh, at eBay, and now he's over at Facebook. Like, we had a lot of good, powerful minds looking at, at what this was and providing really good feedback into what uh, VPS needs to think about and how to do it. Because there were challenges, right? It's not just software, but also hardware integration and how this is going to be done. So that was the first evaluation. And then um, I stayed in, t- in touch with Shankar uh, over the years and just you know kept providing feedback, as did Eddie and others. And so then uh, when I went into Uber, we did the similar thing because we were in Colos. At eBay, it was owned facilities. Okay, And so at Colos, like, what could we do? And so Jim, Jim um, Weinheimer, who ran data centers for me at Uber, right, 
his team was doing the evaluation with the next generation of VPS. Mm-hmm. And so um, the timing didn't work out with Uber, right? So the evaluations are going on. There's, again, great input, great things that were happening, but the timing didn't work out. And then when I came over and started doing this, and by the way, I hired Jim Weinheimer out of Uber. <laughs> Jim is leading the stuff on the other side because uh, he's he's loving it. We're having a great time when was uh, going at this. Because, uh, last year, mid last year or something, he came I in. See. So, yep, and uh, and what's great is, the, the again, the learnings that were happening within that evaluation, now we're woven right into the product that we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And we've been, over the last year, we re-platformed. So every line of code that has been written since the company started was replaced in the last year. Everything has been actually re-platformed and up-leveled into an enterprise piece of it because we spent the time during the pandemic focused on how to scale, build the scalable product. Okay, can you explain that? Can and you that, explain that? It's a rewritten for, um, for mm-hmm. enterprise. So, so think of it as, uh, okay, when you buy a, a piece of enterprise software, you have certain expectations, right? That it's going to be able to now have all the hooks to be able to now interface with any other system. Uh, stability, scalability, all those illities that come along with an enterprise product. Mm-hmm. Salesforce, Oracle, et cetera. You have, to, you have to put some real muscle into the underlying foundation to make sure that you've got something that can be stable and can scale. I see. So, and then there's the other part, consistency, architecture. When you look at how these are put together, the scalability comes from repeatable elements and not that you're hard-coded in a certain way, that you've chosen certain things that would not allow you to be able to change it in the future. So a lot of flexibility built into the actual platform too. And so we brought on new talent, right? Uh, and they were helping with the art re-architecture and the re-platforming. And it was great. The, the pandemic hit at the perfect time for us to be able to do these kind of things. So now we're coming post-pandemic and we've got the new platform, the new scalability elements of it. And now we've got uh, an even more focused effort on this, mul- this multi-nine product. Because that's what's getting traction with the customers. Because it's interesting on both sides. Yeah. And and so what's the what's the new the new platform? What, what do you mean by replatforming? What was the old platform? What's so, the new uh, platform? Yeah, I mean, we think about it from a software standpoint, right? You have a certain selection of how you architected it, languages that you yeah. use, um, and so we basically went and replatformed that whole thing. When I say we wrote every rewrote every line of code, all modules, everything else, they looked through them. Is this something we want to keep? And ultimately, they said we should start it again. And so they did that over the last year. And the new platform, it's the same capabilities. It's just a much more solid platform, scalable platform. I see. Those are the investments that, from a product standpoint, are the tough ones. Like, when do you replatform? Yeah. <laughs> There's never a good time to replatform. So I guess a, a p- right? pandemic so, doesn't happen every... Right. So you take advantage <laughs> of it. You bite, you, you sink your teeth in and go. And, and that was neat. It's so cool... Um, by the way, I don't know if for people that may have been involved in this, they will know what I mean, that when you get engineers that have, you give them the, I guess, the openness to go after something and, um, you know, the uh, approval to do it, they just jump in and do. Yeah. I just love watching engineers work like that. And so it was neat uh, to watch the the process and then see what, see it come out well, the other I, way. Well, I have yet to meet an engineer who doesn't itch to remake all of the code that they're working on to their own <laughs> yeah, liking. True. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's that's usually <laughs> what they prefer, and they don't get to do very often. Very true. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so and, and so VPS doesn't, and you, and you kind of mentioned uh, this element a little bit. So VPS doesn't do much direct selling, from what I understand. It's it's more of a play where the technology is sold as part of a broader solution. 
Is that a correct assessment? Actually, we do both. Mm -hmm. So we have direct sales that we're doing with uh, with our own specific customers, right? So think of colo companies, and we're we're also we're we're focused on two areas right now: uh, core colo and edge. Mm -hmm. And we have deployments in both, right? So when you think about it, it's the same concept, this M nine concept, just in the core and at the edge. It's still about oversubscription management, <clears throat> SLA enforcement, uh, and and ensuring that you're going to be able to meet those SLAs to drive that optimization and increase that margin, right, or lower the cost. And so um, we've got partnerships that we put together, and I, I think this is public, yeah. We, we, had, we, we did a, a, um, an alliance with IT Renew and with EdgeX, and uh, that Edge module in Easy Edge is how do you bundle all these things together and enable people to participate in the Edge easily. Yeah, and IT Renew is and an interesting company. They take, they take hardware, mm -hmm. um, their hyperscalers, have used for a little bit, and hyperscalers are famous for having much shorter IT refresh cycles than everyone else. So uh, once that hardware comes out of their data center, um, the rest of the world can still use it for many years. So they'll repackage that hardware into these full stack solutions or full rack solutions, rather. Rack scale. Yeah, it's, it, it, you know, Ali Fenn is the president and she's on our board for VPS as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, this alliance was really, really, it just, it, it lined up really well because uh, first off, circular economy equipment, like you said, they're taking a waste stream from hyperscalers, waste stream. So think about OCP version two hardware coming out of a data center from Facebook, goes into this, it gets refreshed, right, renewed, and then it's repackaged to be able to resold like HPE, Dell, and Supermicro. But it's full hyperscale integrated racks already. Yeah. And it has a three-year warranty, just like you get from the other suppliers. Yet the big punchline is it's less than 50% the cost for the same performance because mm -hmm. of the circular economy equipment. It's 70% less carbon. And then another thing that's been really important in the pandemic, they have a supply chain that can deliver in less than four weeks. Yeah. If they, if they took all the inventory that they were getting in and sold it, They'd be the fourth largest OEM in the world. Yeah, I remember I, I talked so to them a few months into the pandemic, and they said business has been just bonkers. <laughs> yeah, it's what. So here you've got uh, IT Renew, and then you've got uh, EdgeX is the other partner that we have, and what they're doing is creating this marketplace right on their platform that's enabling CDN, serverless, right, uh, mobile capabilities at the edge. So when you bundle all this together, you've got the most cost-effective, sustainable solution at the edge. It's not just a data center that's empty that you will fill with something or hardware that's going to land somewhere. It's a module that lands in a location and you can turn up the edge and be on the marketplace doing a revenue share with EdgeX. Mm -hmm. So what we do as VPS is help them orchestrate between the facilities and the IT. So the prioritization of equipment, those SLAs, I now can pack 20 kilowatts worth of compute in a 10 kilowatt box. I see. Because I'm oversubscribed and managing all this, right? Uh -huh. And I can get my utilizations at 90, 95% like crypto mining. Okay. And so, so, you're, so you're managing, so in these, how big are these edge uh, modules that we're talking about? They're all the way down to uh, three rack modules, okay. right? That would have, just think of it this way, where there's a, a colo rack, there's kind of infrastructure rack, and then you've got an edge X okay. rack. And the colo rack is a five nine, and the edge, edge X rack is a two nine. 
because in the end of it, you're going to have this, the 5G radios or, or other, other edge infrastructure that a tenant would want in that way with their custom equipment, just like a colo. But then you've got the standardized IT Renew equipment that's scalable. I can keep adding into it because it's hyperscale already, and I can oversubscribe that one. And if I need to shed load to make sure I keep this SLA for the first rack, I do that via VPS software. I see. We're watching this to oversubscribe all the time because then you could say either throttle the CDN traffic into the node or shed the node by dropping a number of nodes down or actually power that whole rack off because we can't compromise the SLA for the colo tenant. It's the same concept there that you would do inside of a colo. Mm-hmm. Just in a smaller it's just scale. M9 mm-hmm. at the edge. Yeah. So it's that, that's been a really interesting project um, and, and getting great traction because, man, the money again that's rolling into this space from edge and core unprecedented so what what's never seen this much out what there. sorts of of companies are are buying this edge solution so it's uh from established companies i'm under nda so i can't really just share the, the type i'm just curious what type of companies verticals but, you know the traditional things you hear about tower companies you hear about um you know uh fiber companies you think about uh uh traditional data centers that actually want to do dis- distribution like that there's also um, enterprise companies that want to have things that are in their parking lot, ironically. <laughs> so there's a lot of people. It, it, and, and look, they're from startups that are doing brand new internet connectivity, right, to smart. I can't share all the elements, but just think of the things we keep talking about, smart things. Companies that are focused on elements of those IoT. Mm-hmm. Transportation, Right. 3D modeling of cities, data replication, orchestration of autonomous vehicles, like all the things that could be driving edge demand, they all have to have commonality in, I need to have compute, I need to have some GPUs, I need to have storage that can handle that thing that's you know proximate to where that load is. So well, I, I can't sell the, the specifics of it, but there's a ton of those out there that the demand's coming in and such creativity. What I can share with you, though, is uh, have you heard of the Autonomy Institute? Have you talked to them? No. Okay. So the Autonomy Institute is a consortium of 80 companies now, I think it is. And you should bring on uh, Jeffrey Deku. He's the uh, the chairman of the Autonomy Institute. Okay. And what they're doing is creating a standardized element uh, for smart cities. And so this is called a PIN. So it's a public infrastructure network node. And just picture this. I mean, we're, we're on uh, on sound here or audio. Um, a light pole. That light pole has a base to it, and then that base, there's 22U of compute. Then it has a mast, and then that mast is 5G, LiDAR, weather, radar, all types of sensors, okay? So this is woven into the actual landscape and cities now, instead of 5G towers and all the technology blight that's going to be coming out because you need 10 times more towers for 5G. So a, so a standardized... A uh, yep. unit for, for everything for wireless connectivity and compute. Right. So the now you start putting those on every street corner. And then you've got compute 100 feet away from you. Now you can think autonomous vehicles to just smart vehicle orchestration for traffic management to coffee shops and anybody else being able to leverage localized compute for engaging experiences for their tenants that come into, or their customers that come into their shops. All of a sudden, you've got compute right where you need it. And then you get 5G that's open it back up into, mm-hmm. right, 100 times more bandwidth and 10 times faster. Yeah. 
So can it's right there. So, so can you can you share yeah. by chance um, how many of these edge locations have been deployed now by customers with VPS technology running? I, I can't share the number, but let me tell Maybe you the, the ballpark. total. Total, okay. I'll, I'll tell you the total. How's this? So um, the pipeline that we've got going on right now, there are tens of thousands of locations, and I'm not exaggerating, tens of thousands in the pipeline from just a small number of companies mm. because they already have these locations. They exist in those locations. They just don't have this solution in the right place. Okay, and these, these are then you're, you're talking about of, total edge nodes, right? Or oh, edge locations like this. Actually, no. So think. So you've got a node, and then you've got a location, right? And then you've got a, a, a metro. So the nodes multiplied by you know how many nodes in a location, like a pin, right? Or a micro data center, right. or a metro data center that's got these edge nodes in it. And then you've got a metro that has the sum of all that. Okay. J- just one element there. Those micro data centers, there's tens of thousands in the pipeline. Mm. And this is that chicken and egg everybody's been talking about. It's like, well, I don't need compute at the edge because I can do it in the core. Well, it's not there, so I can't use it. Well, when you start landing it there and you have 5G that opens up that performance, all of a sudden, guess what? It's just like the App Store. If the App Store didn't exist, nobody would be creating apps. If the App Store exists and you have millions of people writing apps, they're going to use the App Store. So when mm-hmm. you start to have infrastructure in the right space and the speed in which to use it and an appetite, a voracious appetite like us, from these devices and from the machines that are going to use it, it's going to get consumed. When you think about the, 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 the consortium we put together, <clears throat> what is really neat for me is that when you think about a micro data center, it's going to land in these tens of thousands of locations. That's going to have circular economy equipment that's highly performant, highly right, cost-effective, that is highly utilized, day one, which means you suddenly can have a very, very sustainable deployment in there because 70% of the carbon's removed already just because of IT Renew. And and on the core side of things, um, where do you see mo- the most traction? Is it Colos? Is it hyperscalers? 100% with Colos. 100% with Colos. 100%. And, and I would say that um, uh, I, I see this as kind of a three-step process. So we're going after uh, the Colo market because that's where really the biggest stranded pool of capacity is. Um, the math that I've done, and uh, I've actually done this through my masons and and other folks, where we're pretty confident there's at least thirty five thousand megawatts of of data center capacity globally. Mm-hmm. I think it's more towards fifty, but um, there's seven million data centers classified. Now, data center definition is a lot of different things, but seven million locations with at least thirty five gigawatts. Now, think about it: ten thousand megawatts of that is stranded, not used ever. So where is it stranded? The majority it is that the colos are at the mercy of their customer. So for example, at Uber, we would contract, right, this capacity, and then we would build in additional capacity because failover, bursts, whatever else. But we would never use the contract, the full contract. In a lot of cases, you know, it depends on the maturity of the customer, they use a lot less than it. That's what we're saying, less than 50%. When you start matting those up in a colo, they can't do anything. They have to build the capacity, sign for the contract, and then in the end, they're using less than 50% of the capacity. So that is our target market. So first, how do you go enable the colos to offer this up and compete in that space? The second is, how do you get the tenants to go in to start to leverage this? And the third is, how do you get more advanced, the colos, or sorry, I mean the, uh, the actual hyperscalers? Because in a number of iMasons events, they've said, we are highly optimized in our built data centers. 
We can get 80, 90% utilization all the time in our built data centers. Why? Because they own the entire stack from concrete up. But they can't do that in Nicolo. Why? Because the contracts are limited, and so and they don't have direct access to be able to do the same kind of things. So we see ourselves in the middle to enable that same capability of right-sizing applications for hyperscalers in Colos, which makes Colos more attractive, which means it's going to be more investment and the market's going to grow. It seems like, well, it's obviously that requires some quite sophisticated thinking on the customer's side, Colo customer's side, about their workloads and some analysis maybe that they haven't done before. Is, is mm -hmm. that, are, do you guys try to address that part in any way? Or do you just say, okay, well, here's the capability. Now you, you guys have to just yeah. figure out how to best use it. Yeah, good question. Um, I, I don't think it's as, as complex as people think. It's mostly business process and operation hooks. So how do you sell a multi-nine product? You sell a five-nine, everything's very consistent today, right? And I can go back and, uh, uh, and I can uh, be consistent in how I actually deliver to a customer. They're going to buy five megawatts of capacity. It's going to be at this, this efficiency, this price, and I've got a five to 10-year contract. So when you go back and say, now I'm going to offer flexibility in there to attract more customers, and I'm going to do oversubscription inside of that, how do I ensure that I never compromise my SLA for any customer? That's where software has to be in there to be able to do that. But they need to have the business process to say, I know what I'm selling, I know my policies, and then I have the mechanisms, which is VPS, to enforce those policies. Because in the end, if you do need to shut down a 1.9 SLA, how do you do it? Software has to go physically shut it down, right? So the actuators have to be in place to go do that. So we've got our smart switching to enable that to happen. That's a physical thing that allows us to be able to say, we can go enforce that SLA with that, that customer who has signed up for a 1.9 SLA and give them that 30-second 30, 30 grace period to, right? Mm -hmm drain their racks, do a graceful shutdown. Yeah, that The mature customers can do that. But it's tying those together with the actual colo to say, okay, now I have a new thing that I'm selling. How do I do that? So we work with them to go figure out that model going to market and also the comfort level for the operations teams for how this hook is built into it, where they get confidence. Because remember, there's not a lot of software that orchestrates, like none, right. <laughs> inside of data centers today. And that's our expertise. That's why we're going in, and that's why it's going to disrupt this. But we got to help the customers, both the colo tenant side, colo and the tenant side, on this journey. Yeah. Because it really is a, it's it's a really it's a it's a different way of approaching the problem. Yeah, which is which is why I, I sense there's a lot of resistance from colo providers because it's such a different way. Well, a it's just different, radically different from what they're used to, and b, obviously, it's not great for all the investors that would like to see more data centers built rather than less. So, so that, that I, um, I would disagree with a little bit because the demand is so high, it's going to continue to happen. There's like gigawatts worth of pent-up capacity because they don't have it. Not that they're not even use it. I'm saying Greenfield in India, LATAM, right, across, across the, UE, the EU. There's tons of capacity that has to be built. In a lot of the mature markets, think of Virginia and Phoenix and a lot of those, like there's a lot of strand of capacity that could be unlocked, but they also still need to build more capacity. So this tide is lifting all those boats. It just comes down to how they're going to compete because in the end, it's going to be cost. The tenants care about the cost. Yeah. And if you can align to the SLA, they will take the lower cost. They will every time. <laughs> and I've tested this with big companies right on the tenant side 
because they have the maturity today. They do this already. This isn't like, oh my God, I have to write all this. No, I have webhooks and APIs that I can just go use today. Great. So you send me this one, give me my, my grace period and let me go. Yep, I can drain my rack. Just give me the, the alert. Give me the signal and I'll do it. And then if you're going to shut off, I'm already done. Yeah. Great. So so that's it's it's orchestration that's the most important part here. And um, the colo, I think, is, is um, we have a lot of smart people in the data center industry. We have a lot of business savvy people in the industry. And they just got they just needed to get their head around what does the financial model look like because the technology can be implemented it's not rocket science to go back and make it all work it's just orchestration to make sure that what i'm building from a business policy can be enforced inside of my physical environment that does not compromise my customers so that alignment and the elements we've put in place here because there's some really you know novel simple things that are enabling that to happen the actuators the grace period and the software orchestration. Those three elements enable this to happen and give the confidence for people mm -hmm. to deploy it. And so so what's next on VPS's technology roadmap? What what are your engineers busy doing today? You've replatformed. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. what's 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 the next problem? Our our number one focus right now is rollout. I see. <laughs> Dealing with customers and making sure that we can deliver on the, all the pieces that are, are going in parallel. Right? There's a lot of lot lots of work going on, which is really exciting. Um, but in parallel to that, we also have uh, another opportunity that we've been exploring. Um, I didn't think it was going to be um, real, uh, and that's crypto mining. Okay. And you'd never think that okay, this no nine, you know, deployment no nine, tier like zero. No Deploy, deploy, because they have right. nothing, right? Yeah. It's basically street power, and and uh, these these crypto miners, man. Like uh, I've I've visited a number of those facilities and worked with a number of people, and they 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 really have they've got their kind of business down now. It's no longer this wild west element. It's it's a business, and they've figured out how to do this to optimize. And so they're deploying two megawatt containers in two days. They're turning up two megawatts mm -hmm. in two days, mm -hmm. right? And they've figured out the cost elements to keep these down to like. Less than two hundred thousand dollars a megawatt. Hmm. Think about that compared to yeah. Colo, right? But, 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 obviously, but obviously, they don't have all the redundancy, right? Because they don't need right. it. Right. So of course, yeah. But in the end of it, they can take the hits. Yeah. So when we look at it, but they're also at this like ninety-five to ninety-eight percent utilization of power all the time. We thought, well, what what could we actually offer to that? Well, the thing is, when you get that close to the red line and there's no power conditioning or safety nets, they trip. Right? They have mm -hmm. outages, they lose. And when you're down, you're not doing hash rates. So if you are enabling them to be able to say, I can, I can hold you up, because we have you know, uh, basically power bursting that allows them to start to go above. So you don't trip. You can hit that 100% and go above that 100% because we're clipping all that. Right? We're enabling that injection of energy during that period. And then the other one is their three-phase system. So they have phase imbalance. So I've got one, one phase that's higher than the other, and that phase is going to trip my circuit. And so since you've got an une you know, uneven distribution of the machines, you get imbalance no matter what. It just comes down to how much. So we can now correct that phase imbalance at the same time. Then you start to orchestrate that with the actual gas pedal on the Bitcoin machines because they have these overclock capabilities. They can do more, but they're usually constrained by power. Hmm. So, so if you could burst, you could, yeah. right? And then there's another layer of this too, which is around the, the demand response. Think of Texas. Yeah. $9,000 a kilowatt yeah. <laughs> hour, right? 
Eesh. So they, anyway, that orchestration is another uh, opportunity that works. Yeah. So what was you said? You didn't believe uh, there was opportunity in crypto for you guys. What what was it that made you? You know what 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 made the light bulb go off? When we dug into the data, because we kept thinking that okay, right now the the Bitcoin just industry today is uh, anywhere from nine to fifteen gigawatts. Mm-hmm. Okay, nine to fifteen gigawatts of capacity is consumed. Okay, data right. yeah. <laughs> by crypto mining, and and uh, sorry, that's just Bitcoin. Right. So there's a site that actually shows all the hash rates, and they are able to actually accurately predict what it is that's being consumed. And so, um, and we looked at that, thinking, okay, there, first off, there's just this massive amount, and it's not slowing down. Blockchain's here to stay. Right? Whether it's Bitcoin or however blockchain is going to be used, it's going to be the way that these ledgers are going to be computing in the same manner. So this is going to continue to grow. So then if there's that much, there's got to be some way that you can help optimize it. And that's what I was explaining before with the phase imbalance and the power bursting elements of that. Now you could drive these things from 95% to 99%. And then your amount of kilowatt hours consumed to be able to do the work goes up at the same time. So even at these low costs, when you think about it, you know, it's uh, five cents a kilowatt hour to run these machines, but they're making anywhere from 21 to 48 cents a kilowatt hour when they actually, right, land the coin. Mm-hmm. And so there's an opportunity there if I can do more hash rates, I could actually make more money. So when you think about from the mining side itself, you can optimize to help them do more mm-hmm. mining. Have you guys? So we didn't expect that to be there. So have you have you um, had any traction there yet, or is that something? Yeah, yeah. Actually, we've got an engagement going on right now, which is uh, proving out the concept because this is a new thing that we thought, you know, we explored. And uh, there's two parts of it. One is traditional stuff with air, but there's also liquid cooling, and liquid that because they are exploring this, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, the, the containers we're looking at, they're two megawatts. They've got uh, each container probably uh, for 1,400 machines in them or something like wow. that, right? So the inlet temperature, it's outside, it's 94 degrees. The outlet temperature is like 160 Fahrenheit. <laughs> and they're handling it. With liquid. You put liquid in that? No, that's just with air. Yeah. You put liquid in there? All of a sudden, just like the other liquid promise, when you get something that highly utilized, you, the length of the machine, the performance itself, the, the you know just you don't get all these um, these things that actually derade the performance because of heat. And you know Bitcoin has really tuned the machines to be able to do that in high heat. Now all of a sudden you remove the high heat element and have liquid that's you know ex- extracting the heat a hundred times or a thousand times more effectively. Interesting. So less power to move those fans, more power for mining more efficiency in the mining. So it's a it's a really, really interesting space. If you want to get your geek on, go go dive into that stuff. <laughs> I will immediately. <laughs> right on. Buy some machines <laughs> in your garage. <laughs> and a fish tank. Oh yeah, fish tank, yeah. With with engineered uh, <laughs> fluid. Yes, yeah. Florinart. <laughs> um so <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about those bigger issues. Well, you know, you mentioned environment already. So, so there is a growing push by the largest players to shift to zero carbon from merely carbon neutral. The goals are quite ambitious, yeah. zero carbon by 2030. Um, both Microsoft and Google have those goals. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think, well, do you, do you think they can get there given 
the massive constraints. You know, there's technology problems like grid responsive data centers, workload shifting, battery technology is not quite there yet. Uh, there are sure. you know, regulatory market structure roadblocks, uh, just pure renewable availability um, problems mm -hmm. are all over the world. So how optimistic are you about uh, these companies' ability to get there? To, to me, it feels like they should have started this a decade ago instead of just shuffling green energy credits around. And um, mm -hmm. the second part of it is even if the largest players do get there, they represent a minority portion of the, of the total data center capacity in the world. And few other operators, you know, have the will or the resources to do these moonshot projects. Um, so, just I want to hear your thoughts on it. How do you see this zero carbon? You know, they've recognized it publicly sure. that hey, uh, we need to actually figure out how to how to do zero carbon, not not to do the neutrality carbon neutrality thing. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you see this playing mm -hmm. out, uh, especially in the rest of the industry? So. I'm actually pretty bullish about this. Um, and the reason I am, I'll give you a few reasons for it. Um, so first up, you know, at, at iMasons, we are uniting the builders of the digital age. And we have a focus on sustainability. And we created this sustainability vision based on uh, these companies. Every click improves the future. Sounds like a simple statement, but underneath that, every click, that means everything that goes across the internet, improves the future. So how do you define improves the future? You take the goals that these companies come out with. Like 2030 is about getting neutrality. But 2050, this is where Microsoft really upped the game, repaying all carbon emitted since 1974. Mm -hmm. That's a goal. Like that's, that's incredible. So first off, what's different today? Because remember back in 2008, we had, um, we had at Sun Microsystems a very big focus on sustainability. More than a decade ago, right? The appetite wasn't there. There was no structures in place. There was no ESG investing. There was like it just was a a new a new approach on things. So you're right. It should have happened a decade ago, but the the companies, the industry, the world wasn't ready on how to do deal with it. Now we have a crisis on our hands, and the only way this is going to work is not just about hitting neutrality. We will not solve the problem. We have to reverse it, which means that's why goals like what Microsoft has done is very critical. Pay everything back. The other thing that they did, as did Amazon and a number is it, uh, other companies, is created these, um, these sustainability funds. Okay, so Microsoft's got a billion dollar sustainability fund. They want companies to pitch ideas because they don't have all the answers on how to actually do, meet this. And so Noel Walsh, Christian Bellotti, Mark Monroe, like all the people that are really leading this inside of Microsoft, right, they're, they're in it to win it. It's, it's really impressive to watch. So that's one company. Amazon's doing the same. Google, Microsoft, uh, as well as Apple, Facebook, they're all the big players are in it. If you just think of those big five, they do represent a very large portion of the industry. Right now, half of the actual power draw is hyperscalers. And the majority of that are the big five I just mentioned. Mm -hmm when you think of the industry. So they are real movers in it. And then, so there's one other element too. First off, they, they have this at the corporate level C-suite buy-in to do it. Secondly, ESG investment is at an all-time high. BlackRock will only do ESG investments now. That was a massive shift. They're only sinking money into ESG-based companies. That's right, that was massive. kind of one of the, one of the things that I don't know. I don't want to say inflection point because it's such an overused term, but yeah. that letter, <laughs> the famous letter from BlackRock 
CEO to executive mm-hmm. exactly. that kind of announced that two years ago. That was definitely was a big mm-hmm. turning point. It that's, seems like that's when investors that's started world paying attention. Right. And then that started the cascading effect through all these other ones that are going at it. And then, I mean, think about Tesla and its impact on, on uh, the auto industry. And now all of the major manufacturers have a plan to get to all electric vehicles by 2030. All of them. Think about five years ago. Yeah. Not even a glimmer that that was going to be that way. So here you had somebody disrupt and then it happened. So what I'm saying is that um, I'm bullish because, first off, it's at the executive level. Secondly, they've made public commitments about what they're going to do. That's not just about me too, right? Or I'm going to follow on with somebody else. It literally is I'm going to go make game-changing things like what Microsoft did. Okay, and what Google's doing with hour by hour matching, right, for all of these things. Then the next one is they're putting money out. So that is going to drive a whole bunch of innovation from startup companies, et cetera, who want to participate because they can get part of that billion dollar bounty to go after it. Then there's one other element. I think it was Cisco, HPE, and uh, Microsoft, if I remember correctly. They've opened up all of their patents. If you're going after sustainability, you can use their patents. Mm-hmm. That's massive as well, because suddenly the world has the ability to leverage something like that without fear of being sued. That will drive innovation and drive things forward. I also think that um, what you know the ESG goals that are coming back from, um, from the United Nations, that's al- aligning a lot of companies, right? Or sorry, SDGs, the Sustainability Development Goals. Um, that is... That, that's kind of anchoring a lot of people in what has to happen. But in our industry, we have the biggest companies in the world that are all focused on it. Okay, so, so you're, you're quite optimistic. You're saying basically all the right, at least in the private sector, all the right moves are being made and all the right people are paying attention, uh, which, which gives you... And, and they're going to be publicly held accountable to it. Right. Because they've made public statements. Yeah. That's another big deal. <laughs> Another big problem in this industry is the aging and shrinking workforce. Um, mm. It's been well reported that the pool of qualified people is shrinking because more people are retiring than joining and getting trained. Um, also, the mm-hmm. people who are qualified are getting huge. They're getting huge salaries. They're expensive because because there's seniority and and there's high demand. So that makes it even harder for companies to hire. Um, you guys have at iMasons have looked at this issue for a while now. What do you think will be the most effective solutions to this problem? Well, we got to get out of our own way because um, right now, I think that the way people are trying to solve it is by poaching from other companies. It, it isn't going to work. We don't have enough supply in the industry already. And so if we just keep poaching from each other, we're not going to backfill. Because, you know, Uptime Institute, I think, put out that there's another 300,000 jobs that are needed. And then we've got 40% of the workforce is it's graying out, right? And so... We have to source from other pools. And so what we're focused on in the Masons is to help educate the broader community about opportunities and then offering the sustained or the um, scholarship opportunities for bringing other people in. And the pandemic was um, one of those things that people, a lot of people lost their jobs. Yet we had more demand than ever in digital infrastructure. So we kept introducing people. Hey, look, Go train yourself. We'll pay for it. <laughs> we need talent in here. We need to be thinking about this differently. We need more resources. And so I think companies are, are doing a lot of that to say they've got to expand the pool. They've got to go back and get more people coming in. So that's one one element. The other is um, just education within the uh, schooling systems. So we've got a, uh, a program right now with um, HBCUs 
so historically black colleges and universities, and we did a capstone project. And in that capstone project, we basically charged them with a, um, uh, a learning exercise. You need to start from zero, learn about data centers, and design a data center infrastructure deployment based on an application with a growth of X. So we just gave them the parameters, and they had to go figure That's it out. That's pretty cool. And what this kind was, of people were this, uh, was this problem presented to? So it was electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, computer science, um, uh, architects, right? And uh, so civil, and like a mixture of those at, at this first college. is called Hampton University. And we were, we were, it was so fun to watch because I was on the first advisory stuff, and then we pulled in more advisors that were part of the project throughout the year. It was a year-long capstone project. And um, then they presented, and we pulled in all the big players from the big hyperscalers and other companies. So we had CEOs and, and others from the Colos. We had, and they, all of the students in that program got hired. Wow. <laughs> all of them. How, right? many, how many people? So we, there were 12, 12 in that class, or no, 20, sorry, 20 students, right? We had two, two, two cohorts. And they went and presented, and all of them got hired back into the industry. And, um, and we'd given all of them scholarships. So when we came in, we said, uh, so they signed with the project. If you want to do this capstone project, we will give you a scholarship. They all took us up on it. They all delivered on it. And in the end of it, they got jobs. That's the kind of traction we're looking for. So we took this, and now there's 13 um, colleges and universities across the HBCUs. So we're expanding this out to four of these this year, and we want to do it for all of them the following year. And we want to give scholarships to everyone who participates. Because it just suddenly opens the eyes for students. And boy, um, it was just, think about it this way. Um, there's a diverse pool of talent that all of us have been looking for, and it's been right in front of us through these colleges. It was more than 50% female, right? And there was one Caucasian male on the entire group. Hmm. That, to me, is like the diversity. It, it, it just really nailed so many things we're going after from an education standpoint, right? From a diversity and inclusion standpoint, from a talent shortage standpoint, from a um, even the, the uh, digital divide. One of the students when they were presenting said, I had no idea how important digital infrastructure was until I did this project. I realized broadband in my community is, is not having and is limiting all the people that are there. That was a realization that a student had based on the project. I'm like, that's... <laughs> That's going to go so far. Yeah. So, so, so no, that's kind of the stuff that we're working no, on. No magic solution here. It's, uh, it's, it's the, the basics is, is spreading awareness and education. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you make it sound not sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, you, Kitty. <laughs> I, figure, I figure Dean is a smart guy. He's been thinking about this for a while. He's going to tell us he's figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's just good old hard work and connections and, and getting people aware. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, Dean, thank you so much. Thanks for all your time. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's great connecting with you again. Likewise. Likewise.